I want to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Romans 11. And we'll be starting at verse 33. The topic of the glory of God fills the pages of Scripture. And so finding a passage that encapsulates or summarizes this notion that all glory, laud, and honor belongs to God, that proved to be somewhat of a challenge because there are just so many. But as I was thinking, here in the epistle of Romans, we have a protracted discussion of the gospel. And especially in chapters 9, 10, and 11, you have an in-depth discussion of the notion of God's sovereignty in salvation. The first eight chapters discuss the fact that we are all rebels. Every one of us is guilty. The condemnation and the wages for that guilt is death. But God shows us mercy. But then in chapters 9, 10, and 11, the question of how is it that some who seem to be so close actually don't get it, and some who are so apparently far off do in fact receive mercy, how is that possible? So Paul discusses that in depth for three chapters. And at the end of this discussion of the inscrutable, mysterious workings of the will of God in human history, the only thing that we can do in response to the grace we have been given is to praise. And that is the end and purpose of God's glory for us, is the praise, the magnification of his name. So read with me, please. Romans 11, verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. And how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us in Christ. Lord, your glory is an awesome thing. It's a mysterious thing. But it's also a beautiful thing. Help us to see and savor it. To marvel and in fact to revel in your goodness on display. Help us to be ever more satisfied and content in you. Eschewing the things of this world that would promise satisfaction, contentment, and fulfill it, but ultimately, as in the words of Jeremiah 2, it's a broken cistern that holds no water. Help us to come to you, the fount of living water, and find our nourishment and rest in you. For the sake of Jesus, who shed his blood for us, we ask this. Amen. All right, well, this is our fifth and final sola of the Reformation. As you can recall back over the previous four messages, we began our study by looking at Scripture. Namely, the notion that Scripture alone serves as our authority. 
that every doctrine, every practice, every judgment must find itself subject to and in subordination to Scripture. There are many true statements in the world. Two plus two equals four. But Scripture alone is truth. And it is the standard by which everything else is standardized. It is the norm by which everything else is normed. When we stand before the judgment seat of God, we will be judged not on the basis of the mysteries of God's decree. We will be judged on the basis of what God has revealed to us in His Word. It is our authority. But then we looked at the notion of grace. How is it that people who are estranged from God, alienated from God, enemies of God, can come to be the objects of God's delight? That enemies can instead become children and guests. How is that possible? The answer, of course, is grace. The idea that every blessing... All of God's favor comes to us as an undeserved gift precisely when what we should have been expecting and deserving was His judgment. It is by grace. You can add nothing to what God has done. You cannot do anything that makes God more or less inclined to show you favor. It is all a gift. But then we looked at Faith. What role does faith play in the Christian life? Especially when it comes to our standing in the sight of God. And we learned that sola fide, or faith alone, teaches that we are justified or declared to be legally righteous or legally perfect by faith alone. And that our good works are the evidence and sign of a supernatural working in our life but they do not somehow cooperate with our faith to produce justification. No, we are declared right. And then from that flow every good deed that we are called and created to do. And then last week we looked at Christ alone. How everything about the created order, we looked at Ephesians 1, how Christ is the sum and center of all creation. He's the object to which everything points in God's redemptive plan for the universe. The magnification of God in the Son. And you are safe and you are secure because Christ, the God-man, has paid it all. His sacrifice is completely sufficient. There is nothing for you to add. There's no purgatory. There's no atonement needed on your part. There's no self-punishment required. In fact, that dishonors the pristine beauty of what Christ has done for you. We're called to receive and rest in His work, not try to add to it. Now this week, we come to Soli Deo Gloria. We talked about it briefly at the beginning of our service. It's the notion that God alone gets the glory. Or to God alone be the glory. It's the idea that God and His magnification is the end or the goal for everything. Now oftentimes when you hear it presented, it it seems to be the punctuation.
exclamation, the emphatic exclamation at the end of a sentence. So we'll say things like, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And that's not wrong. Okay? But I want you to see that the goal of God's glory is not just the exclamation point. It's actually the lifeblood that flows through everything. God's glory is the lifeblood that makes everything else possible. We learn in Scripture that God's glory is the object that God is obtaining in everything He does. God's glory is the highest goal, the greatest good, and it is what God pursues with his passion. Now understand that uh, because of how frequently the Bible speaks of God's glory, there was never in the time of the Reformation anyone who would have had the audacity to come out and explicitly say, the glory belongs to someone else. Okay? No one has the audacity to expressly say that someone other than God should be getting the glory. But what the Reformation was keen on was pointing out the fact that it is in fact possible to construe your theology and understand your role and understand God's place all in such a way that the net effect of it is that God does not get all your praise and that you do claim some credit for yourself. And so to the extent that we have an understanding of life and do our business and view ourselves and indeed view God in such a way that he doesn't quite get all the credit, we there have the need to assert that it's God alone who gets the glory. Now it's been said that the central doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church is ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. Think about it. The church is central to their theology. The church exists before the word, so the church gives the, the, the Christians the Bible. Uh, salvation flows through the sacraments administered solely by the church. You must submit to the leadership of the Pope. The church, the church, the church. If you want to see if you are right with God, you just simply have to ask yourself, am I right with the church? The doctrine of the church is the central teaching of Catholicism. For Lutherans, the central doctrine is justification. In fact, you could say their doctrine of salvation begins and ends with justification. The, the notion that we are declared right by faith alone is, is the center of their theology. And you may say, well, that's the center of our theology. No, it's actually not the center of Reformed theology. The center of Reformed theology is the notion of God's glory. That God gets the glory for everything. In fact, everything that God does, everything that God decrees, everything that God wills, every ethical imperative he gives us, everything has as its aim and goal the magnification of his name. The reason God saves sinners, the reason why God judges iniquity is all for his glory. 
Now, we believe as Reformed Christians that we should be explicitly and expressly oriented towards the glory of God precisely because in his word, God repeatedly and explicitly makes it clear that that's what he's working toward. So if we're going to be on the same team as God, then we happen to believe that we should have the same priorities that he has. Sound reasonable? So if God says, my number one goal is the pursuit of my glory, then what should be our number one goal? The pursuit of his glory. Okay? That's how it works. Um, We can sometimes ask, well, why is God pursuing his glory so vigorously? I mean... Quite frankly, uh, it, that seems kind of selfish and vain, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. If, if I'm up here pursuing my glory, or, or if you find someone who's just all about pursuing their glory, we call them vain. And we actually look down on that person. But why do we look down on that person? Because you have someone who thinks there's something they're not. If I'm up here looking down my nose at you, treating you like you're, like you, like you should be in awe of your kid, that's right, you get to be in the same room with me, you know, who does this clown think he is? He's just a person. You know, he puts his pants on one leg at a time just like me. Who does he think he is? But what do we say about a being who is in fact the greatest being? What do we say about a being who is in fact perfect? Who is in fact different? Who is in fact the creator of everything else? What is it called for us when we have something that is more important than God? What do we call it when we make something more important than God? What do we call that? Idolatry. What would it be then if God, who is the perfect being, had something that was higher than himself that he looked to? What would that be called? Do you see the issue? So when God asserts his glory, he's simply asserting his own supremacy. There is none higher. Everything is too through and for him, as we learned in verse 35 or 36 of Romans 11. Now, as Christians, it's important that we keep God's glory ever center in our mind and expressly before our eyes. Why? Because we are naturally rebels. We are naturally idolaters. We are naturally more concerned about our fame, our reputation, our standing. We want to niche out our little corner and hold on and take claim and plant our flag, and we want to assert ourselves. That's what we do. And it's very easy then to forget, no, it's about God, not me, not you. Let's look to God and what makes him famous that kind of helps keep all of our churchy things in, function, in, 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 in proper perspective. The church exists for three basic purposes. To glorify God in worship. To nurture believers, to equip them for, for the works of ministry. And to witness to the world in evangelism. Okay? 
Now, you can look at churches that, that make basically one of those three things their sole priority. There are churches that are basically all about nothing but evangelism. There are churches that are all about doing churchy life together, and so they have nothing but fellowship events, and that's all they do. And then, of course, you have churches where all they do is have a worship service. But if we're going to be doing the priorities of God, do you see how we kind of have to balance all three? Because all three brings God glory. It glorifies God when rebels bow the knee to Jesus and become precious children. It glorifies God when babes in Christ increasingly forsake the things of the world and become more like Jesus. And it glorifies God when we cast our cares to the wind and run arms open wide to the grace he offers us in Christ and praise him in worship. That glorifies him and makes him look great. We cannot assume the glory of God. It must be explicit. I remember very vividly a church planning class that I had at Moody Bible Institute. Now, I'm happy with my alma mater. The class was a good class, but I'm just criticizing this one comment, okay? So don't stop supporting Moody. Don't be afraid to send your kids and grandkids there. I'm just saying this one class by this one professor, this one comment, all right? So in this church planning class, the professor was talking about how he thought it was cheesy when churches make reference to the glory of God in their mission statements or purpose statements or vision statements, whatever. He thought it was cheesy. And I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a, I don't sit quietly kind of guy. And I said, Dr. whatever, how can you say it's cheesy to talk about God's glory when the Bible talks about God's glory so often? And he said, well, we're a Christian church. I mean, it's assumed that we're doing things for the glory of God. We don't got to mention it. And, I, you know, I stopped there. But do you see the problem? What is assumed is often forgotten. And I've learned being a pastor that you may assume that everybody's on the same page. And guess what? They're not. Is it safe for me to say, I don't need to tell my wife I love her. I'm her husband. She knows I love her. Is that a recipe for marital satisfaction? No. The fact that I'm her husband should lead me to acts and words that express the love I have. If I don't even say it and just assume it, well, I may not be a happy man, okay? We don't assume things in life safely, so let's not assume it about God either. Now, what do we mean by God's glory, though? I've talked about it a lot. The Bible says glorious praise, give God the glory, glory this, glory that. What is God's glory? Well, at one level, you could say it's his fame, or his reputation. Uh, you can say that when we are talking about glorifying God, we're meaning that we give him the recognition and credit of something so that God looks good. Okay, that's all true. When we speak of glorifying God, if you want to keep it simple, you're making God look good. Okay? <clears throat> but we learn in Isaiah 6.3 that God's glory is simply 
His holiness on display. We referenced Isaiah 6 a few weeks ago when Isaiah the prophet is, is in a vision transported to the throne of God and the angels are speaking to each other and what do they say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What? The earth is full of the glory of the Lord. So in a very real sense, when we're speaking of God's glory, we're talking about his holiness that is on display. God's utter and complete uniqueness. His complete and utter perfection. His complete and utter distinctiveness. All of that is on display. We learn in Psalm 19.1 that the heavens declare the glory of God. God's beauty and holiness is on display in creation. But he's not just something that is what he does. We learn in the Bible that his name is glory. He's referred to by name as the glory of Israel. The majestic glory. That's how God is referred to. It's his name and, and even I am, the name Yahweh we are told in Scripture, is glorious. Why? Because his name, I am, the imperfect tense of that, it, it reveals to us the fact that he's utterly unknowable. He's utterly incomprehensible. He's utterly unchanging, immutable. He's utterly eternal. He's utterly everywhere. You can't locate, identify, pin him down, except by, which, or the, except by that which he reveals of himself. He's above us, beyond us. He's greater than us. So when we, when we speak about God's glory and how all life flows through him and from him, all light is through and from him, everything that exists is from his creative mind and power, when we speak of his glory then, in light of the fact that it's his holiness on display, we're talking about his manifest or, ex or exhibited perfections on display. His perfections in all their parts and of all their attributes on display. God's glory then is the magnification and beauty of everything that makes God, God. His judgments are perfect. His righteousness is perfect. His holiness is perfect. His creativeness is perfect. His power is perfect. His goodness is perfect. His love is perfect. Name an attribute, and it's perfect. It cannot be improved upon. And so it's beautiful. It's glorious. So when we seek the glory of God, when we seek the magnification and praise of God's glorious, beautiful, abundant perfections, what we are asking for is for the world to recognize that God is supremely perfect and beautiful. Adore this God in all of his parts, in all of his attributes, I mean. He's perfect. He cannot be changed or improved upon or taken away from. He cannot be minimized or blocked out. He's there. He's the center of the universe, and he's awesome. He's a consuming fire as a metaphor, and it's fantastic to behold. Now, 
when God relates to us, he could be saying to us, you know what? I'm this holy God, and you will give me the praise I'm due. Could he not just say that? I will share my glory with no other. Isn't that in the Bible? It is, in Isaiah 43. And he could just demand without giving. Couldn't he? He could. But he doesn't. We see in Scripture a God who is delighted to, in a very real sense, give us glory as well. God is glorified in the glorification of sinners. Did you know that? God resists those who resist him. Look at uh, Genesis 11. God gives a command to the nations, go and spread out over the earth. And they say, no, we will not go. We're going to stay here. We're going to congregate together. And we are going to make a name for ourselves. And because they say this, they're about their glory. What does God do? He comes down and judges. Very next chapter, chapter 12, verse 2, he speaks to the father of faith, Abram. And what does he say? Go to a land that I will show you and I will bless you and I will make your name great. The very thing that he condemns the nations for just a few verses before is the very thing he promises to Abram if he will obey him in faith. God is pleased to humble the proud and exalt the humble. So God, when he says he will not share his glory with another, what he means is that he will not allow a usurper to come along and steal by coercive force or trickery that which belongs to him. It doesn't mean that he's a selfish hoarder who holds on to his bag of cookies and won't share with the people who ask. God gives us freely. In fact, we learn in Isaiah 43, 7. That we were created for God's glory. Now when it says created for God's glory, it doesn't just mean created so that we could give God glory. It does mean that. But it means that we were created to enjoy it. To receive it. To experience it. To share it. To love it. That is why it so delights the hearts of believers to praise. The more God is exalted, the more Christians' hearts are warmed. An unbeliever can come and sit in a service and just, doesn't matter how fantastically things are, their heart is dead within them. But our hearts are strangely warmed. And praising God is a source of delight for us precisely because we were created to do that. There are things in the world that are created to do weird things. Like a Chesapeake Bay retriever loves busting through the ice to swim in an otherwise frozen lake. That sounds stupid to me. But a Chesapeake Bay retriever loves that. You know, a hamster loves running on a circle, on a, on a wheel. It loves it. 
In the same way, we were created to desire and to resonate with and to rejoice in God's glory for us. Which is why it's part of our promised inheritance. Did you know that glory is promised to you? Did you know that in Romans 8, we learn that the very ones whom God justifies, that he declares right, are the ones that he ends up glorifying? We learn from 1 John 3, that one of the great promises set before us is that we will be able to do what no one previously has been able to do. That is, see God as he is in all of his glory. Moses, in Exodus 33, asks to see God's glory. And what's he told? No one can see my glory and live. And so he's shown only like the the, the afterglow of God's glory as it passes by. The, The radiant excellences of God's perfection and beauty is too much to behold. But we are promised that in the final analysis, we will somehow be able to behold God as he is. That is awesome. And 2 Peter tells us that in that moment, we will become partakers of the divine nature. Did you know that? And so the hope that is set before us is the very glory of God. Not that we become gods or anything like that, but we will be so filled with the beauty and perfections of God that they will radiate radiate from us just like that stone I used to, to smoke some of that meat for my chili this afternoon. Had it in the smoker a few hours, and I took it out, and it was hot, hot, hot. Just as hot as the oven itself for hours. And we will be like that. The glory of God given to us is such an important thing that it is called our blessed hope. Did you know that in Titus 2.13, when it speaks of the Christian's blessed hope, It's not talking about the return of Christ in the abstract per se. What our blessed hope is, is the appearing of the glory of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The glory of God is amazing. And so as we bask in its brilliance, it warms us. It fills us. You ever come in from the outside and you're just chilled to the bone? I'm not just talking about cold. I'm talking about when you've been out for a protracted time and, and, and you're, just, you're just bone chilled. It's just in you and, and just putting on a blanket even doesn't really help. But then you go up, stand in front of a fireplace or, or, or one of, remember those old-fashioned water radiators? That, that, anyway. And you just feel the heat and it's almost like you're, you're soaking up the heat. That's what we'll be like with God's glory because we were created to be receptacles of his glory. And as we spend eternity basking in his glory, we will be satisfied supremely in him, and that makes him look more glorious, which in turn makes us experience his glory even more. And forever, it will be like this. Uninterrupted, undiluted glory. But even here in this temporal time, in this transient way, We were not simply made to give God glory, which we are. We were not simply made to experience God's glory, which we do. We were made, actually, to reflect God's glory. In Psalm 8, 
we learn that mankind has been crowned with glory. Of course, Jesus is the perfect man. And so the glory that he has is perfected far above what we have as sinful humans. But the fact of the matter is, is that as people made in the image of God, God has imbued us with his glory. We are the apex and pinnacle of creation. He created us to be his image, his deputies on the earth, bringing order to chaos, making sure everything in creation went right. Now, it is God's image that gives us our glory, so to speak. Okay, God's glory in us is what dignifies human life. It isn't that we walk upright. It's that we're his image. And so human life is dignified. You cannot be a human being without having dignity. So along the entire spectrum, from the womb to the aged, from the robust to the infirm, if you are a human being, you are endowed with glory and should be treated with dignity and respect. This whole die with dignity movement, I'm sure you've heard about it. What a cop-out. What a selfish attempt to usurp the plan of God so I can die on my terms while I still look good and before I have any pain. You know what dying with dignity for a Christian means? It means accepting and embracing the frailty, the agony, the suffering, not because there's some glory in it itself, but looking beyond it to the one who has promised you everything, that you will shine like the sun. And dying in complete surrender to the will of the one who saved you from everything to give you an inheritance that will never perish. That is dying with dignity. So along the human spectrum, we are to give God the glory. Now also, because our lives are imbued with glory, this has something to speak to our callings in life. Back in the Middle Ages, there was this vast distinction between ministerial orders and everything else, the, the secular world. If you were not a minister or a monk, if you had not taken holy orders, then you were basically a second-rate Christian. The only glorying God you did was coming to church and participating in the service. Your life really had no spiritual significance. But the Reformation recovered the notion that if my life is imbued with glory, if God's glory is manifest in me, then that means whatever calling God has set before me can be a vehicle and a vessel by which I bring glory to God in this world. So whether you're a butcher, a baker, or a candlestick maker, whether you're a banker, a lawyer, a professor, a mechanic, or a homemaker, or a caregiver, you can give glory to God by how you approach your task. Did you know that it is possible to be a plumber and bring more glory to God than perhaps even if you were a minister? 
Did you know that? It's all in the attitude and the perspective and the goal with which we are seeking our business. God's glory means everything you do has value. And if you are seeking the praise of the one who gives all praise, then you're pursuing the right thing. So our salvation, our lives, our existence are all for the glory of God. It is my prayer for you that you will walk out these doors and know whatever calling God has given to you, it's valuable. And that your person is precious. And that you are his image and you have dignity. And that you will think of God in ways that are supremely beautiful and satisfying. So that at the end of the day, when you are standing before him basking in his presence, there will be a fine consistency between that which we are experiencing and that which we profess. It's to God alone is all glory. Let's pray.